Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome back to Live Longer, the podcast, as I continue this second series, The Art of Living. And this is Hand in Hand with Iona, a digital healthcare company I founded with a number of colleagues to deliver the right information to the patient at the right time, and in partnership with Homerton Changemakers Programme at Cambridge University. Now, today, I really have a very intriguing guest to interview, born in 1947 and educated at Wellington College, Berkshire. She was a medical student at St. Thomas's Hospital and became a consultant orthopaedic surgeon appointed to the Whittington, among a number of other hospitals, and gave a long career to the NHS over several decades, retiring in 2012, but is still very much active and is operating in the private sector. Not only is she an excellent hip surgeon, she's an innovator, a researcher in her field, and has really led the field in hip surgery, specialising in complex hips. And clearly, by virtue of being a hip surgeon, she will see people at both ends of the life spectrum, both very old and also younger with her work in elite athletes. She's notable having operated in a number of key um, international and public figures such as the Queen Mother and indeed Andy Murray, which is in the public domain. But one of the things that really intrigues me about this wonderful surgeon is that she's also a photographer. And in fact, there was a point where, you know, perhaps if she hadn't had done hip surgery, she may have been a photographer. And this is the reason I'm really interested in seeing was there cross fertilization of ideas and how does her photography enhance her hip surgery work and how does the hip surgery work enhance the photography and so enable her to bring longer, healthier lives to all of her patients and also the people who were lucky enough, such as myself, and now hopefully many, many others to enjoy her wonderful photographs. So join me in warmly welcoming Ms. Sarah Moorhead-Alwood. Sarah, you're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you for that uh, great introduction. Indeed. It's a pleasure to have you here. And I am so honoured to be able to interview you. I mean, I know you've done several interviews and you're highly sought after, but I think maybe tonight it would be really, really nice to explore a little bit more about you as a person and what drives you into surgery versus photography. Maybe we start off and I'd love to know what made you choose orthopaedic surgery, say, over photography? Well, when I was actually at school, I was mad keen on painting. And at that point, I sort of decided, I wondered whether I should actually go to art school and be an artist, which was pretty brave because that's a fairly risky um, career. Mm. Anyway, I then decided that I was not actually nearly good enough at painting to become a sort of successful painter. So I gave that up. But somehow, as I gave up, painting, I started taking more and more photographs. So by the time I got to medical school, because I decided that I needed a a sort of respectable profession, I came from a good middle class background, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you needed to do these things. And so I went to medical school and I went to St. Thomas's. And at that point, I was really very, very keen, spent a lot of time taking photographs, I instantly did all the sort of photographs of the you know, medical school, magazines, Christmas shows, but lots of portraits of people at the hospital, which I did for money to support it. And I was really, really keen. But during that time, and during that time as a student, I probably actually didn't um, avoided quite a lot of my medical studies more than I should have done. But in any event, I qualified and decided at that point that my photography really would be 
um, a secondary thing, but I have continued to do it always. But my orthopedic career then took over. I think probably now that I'm getting older and working slightly less in orthopedics, my photography is becoming much more to the fore again. Mm. But that's basically the position, I think. Mm. And you said you were going to become an artist and you thought you weren't going to be good enough to be successful. So I hear this word success. It's obviously very important to you to be the best, you know, you're, you know, a high achieving personality. Was that what really inspired you then um, to go after your career in orthopaedic surgery? Because you knew that you could be the best at that or give you the confidence to do it? I think it is possibly true, but I think it is possibly actually would be related to my late mother, who I think was very um, determined that I should be successful. <laughs> A lot of mothers want their children to be successful, I well, think. Exactly. And they're hugely powerful in that. I'm not sure that I'm not a surgeon because she sort of suggested I might be a surgeon from very, very young. But I certainly am reported at saying I was interested in being a surgeon by the time I was seven. <laughs> I'd, actually, my father had been a doctor. Um, I, I was actually a posthumous child, so I was brought up with this memory, this sort of idealized father um, who had been a doctor who I never knew. So again, I think that actually has influences. Of course. Well, you know, you laugh at this. My father said that I should be a doctor and I thought, hmm, I think I'd like to be a newsreader. And he said, well, you could be a nun either. And I thought, OK, I'll go to medical school. <laughs> well, I think I think parents do have a huge influence if they're clever on what their children do. Yes, yes. And who bought you your first camera? It wasn't your parents, was it? Was it yourself? The first camera I had, I was actually... Um, when I was about 12, 14, my stepfather, who'd been a dentist, um, got sort of Parkinson's with a rather nasty form that would precede our dementia. And so I, bought I was then actually able to take over and the family cameras. And so the, the family had a couple of cameras, which I then decided were mine pretty much and used them all the time. Hmm. Then when I was actually 21... I got a Nikon, my first Nikon of a large series of Nikons. And at medical school, I used to do most of the work actually with two Nikons at the same time because you have different lenses on them and it's much, two bodies was actually much more useful. Mm. And you told me that you had an extraordinary number of cameras. I can't remember what number, but I, I know it was a lot still. <sighs> I have because I've got a terrible habit of not getting rid of them. <laughs> so I've still got my original, or um, well, one of my two original Nikons. In fact, because I sort of quite like, I, I actually replaced the one that had, I'd been stolen, not, you know, about 10 years ago, just because it would, it's nice to have all the cameras I've ever had. And I do have an example of all the cameras I've ever had still. Mm. I mean, in the old film days, you didn't change your camera that much. As we've had digital, the changes have been absolutely huge. And you really have had to change cameras to keep up at all with progress. I mean, my first really expensive digital Nikon, actually, I think only was four megapixels, which is tiny, I will tell you. It's, um, it, it was got such poor resolution photographs. Um, modern cameras are about 10 times 
that. Hmm. But there is a lot of kit with becoming a photographer. I mean, presumably that goes hand in hand with being a surgeon. You're dealing with kit and it doesn't phase you. And also because you're you're innovative in your field, surely that's why you you want the, le- the best and greatest technology to get the more perfect picture. Is, is that part of it as well, the collecting the cameras? Yeah, I get, well, I mean, I think keeping, keeping the cameras is sort of sentimentality, really, because a lot of them, I mean, if if they even switch on these days, it would be lucky, but I have a sentimentality to keep them. Hmm. I mean, I've somehow not needed to sell them. And anyway, I've, I have them. I, and I've also got some sort of more, I've got quite a, quite a lot of film cameras, which are of interest, um, and sort of plate cameras, 10-8 plate, five, four plate cameras and things like that, which are really um fun and I still do use mm. because every so often I still take film but you know, generally these days I use rather expensive digital cameras mm. of different forms. But the whole end-to-end production of the photographs you, you're familiar with that as well I mean you've printed pictures you still print them but you know it's, it's there's a science to it isn't there? Well there is I, I particularly um, since digital photography has come about I really believe that printing pictures and that the printed picture is still the final output and so every picture I really take I always land up with a print which is usually a fairly big print because that somehow to me it is a different emotion to looking a little picture on a computer screen somehow very different it's in part something very very different to you I mean obviously they are different because one's uh, sort of it's got projected light and one's got reflected light and that makes a big difference. It also probably makes a difference to how you perceive colours. Mm. And I, I noticed when we went through your photographs, I mean, you, you certainly perceive things and items in um, the real world slightly differently. Maybe that's because behind the lens, your series on flowers. So, you know, the classical beautiful lily is taken in full bloom, but, you know, you took one that it was sort of towards end of life, but it was still beautiful. It's almost like this crumbling, beautiful old lady who still has grace and beauty. I, I, it was striking, I thought. Yeah, I, I think things that are beginning to decay become really interesting. I mean, they get much more textural and at some point, at one point they retain their colour and become much more textural. Um, yes, I think I've done lots of photographs of things slightly past their prime. Mm. And of course, photographing people past their prime is actually fascinating because people's expressions actually become much, much more interesting as they get older. They may be less classically beautiful, but they become have much more interesting faces. Mm, but of course, people then, women in particular, spend so much on plastic surgery, Botox, fillers. That's kind <laughs> of a shame, isn't it, to hide your history? I think um, plastic surgery is a pretty dangerous road to go down. Um, for a lot of people because unfortunately it seems fairly addictive and people seem to not be satisfied with one episode but they need to repeat it and repeat it you definitely get some elements of destructive elements both the creative elements in, in plastic surgery and people tend to get worse and worse the more they do that's in my opinion. Mm, mm. Whereas with hip surgery, it's more repair process. You're giving back something that's gone wrong, isn't it? Yes. I mean, when I was sort of thinking of surgery, I I did toy with being a plastic surgeon. And the reason I wasn't a plastic surgeon is probably because 
at that point there were, I think I did my research and there were 50 plastic surgeons in the British Isles and there were 49 senior registrars in the British Isles and no, none of the consultants were looking like dying. And so the whole situation was completely static. Mm. And I was aware because I'd done house surgeons in orthopedics that that was something that did interest me as well. Mm. And the minute I started doing orthopedics, I actually found it easy. I'd done quite a lot of surgery um, as a junior, but orthopedics, I sort of took to water. I went in, in a, with a, like a fish in, in water. I, and I could swim in it. It was easy mm. to me. But you have a nice, calm personality. I mean, a lot of orthopedic surgeons, particularly when you trained, had, you know, reputations for being prima donnas, not very nice people, dare I say. You know, I have lovely orthopedic surgical friends, but you aren't the typical orthopedic orthopod, might I say. <laughs> no, I guess that's true. And I guess that possibly because of that, I, I mean, my interest in orthopedics was always, or by the time I was coming a more senior junior, um, within the failure, and again, maybe destruction, but failing hips, hips that were past their best. And when I sort of became a consultant, hips had been being put in in sort of fairly decent numbers for you know, 10, 12 years. And the number of failures out there was huge. And I think possibly because I didn't fit in all, all sorts of things, I wanted to be slightly different because of it. I decided that looking, doing, specialising in revision hip surgery was the way one should go. And I mean, it was a great place to be at that time because so many surgeons were didn't want to do it and just wanted to hand it off to somebody else because it was thought really that it, you couldn't do it, it didn't work and the results were terrible. And you know, with work at it and sort of looking at changing the prosthesis and things, one got it to be actually very, very successful. And, and that was, I think, really sort of launched my career. As time's gone by, I've got more involved in techniques to make primary hips last better and quite a lot of design work with um, various companies on designing hip prosthesis, mm. which has been actually lovely, fascinating. Mm. I mean, as a rheumatologist, of course, I see those patients who have failing hips and need revisions. They have a lot of pain. And I work closely with orthopaedic surgeons. And it's it's hard to find somebody who wants to operate on somebody else's failing hip. You have to be brave. You have to be confident. And these are all characteristics that I, you know, there's a quiet confidence about you. And again, this strive to be successful at what you're doing. You've chosen a very difficult area. You haven't gone the easy route, Sarah. Well, I always worried about my career in surgery because I wasn't part of the rugger crowd. Um, yeah. <laughs> somehow, orthopedic surgeons all did seem to come pretty much from the sort of rugger crowd at the time. And no, I never felt that I was in that typical image of them at all. But that never worried me. Yeah, but it's ironic now that you do operate on a number of elite athletes. You're able to help <laughs> um, the rugby players and, and the tennis players, as I mentioned in the very beginning, which is in the public domain about you operating on Andy. 
I mean, some of your work actually is a little nod to orthopaedic surgery. I mean, I loved your picture of the knives and the nails. And of course, these are tools, not, not necessarily the knives and the nails that you photographed, but they are the tools of an orthopaedic surgeon, aren't they? Or any surgeon, you have a knife, you have nails, you have cement, you've got a lot of, it's a physicality. And, and were those, you know, objects inspired by your work or just totally random? Totally random. Not No, they were, I think the nails is because I think nails are slightly frightening things. They sort of threaten because you feel that you could fall onto them or whatever. Um, the knives, again, I think are threatening and frightening, but no, they, they, I, they, I don't see them as being a link to orthopedic surgery directly at all. Interesting. And your nails, you've softened them because you've made some of them purple and the knives, you've turned the blades away. So were you trying to mitigate that threatening you know, connotation of the knives and nails? And with the knives, it was pretty much all about just getting shapes. Mm. I mean, technically, to try and photograph the edge of a sharp knife is extremely difficult because it's not really there. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's easier to photograph them the other way around. With the nails, I felt like, I mean, the main interest of photographing the nails was actually plane of focus so that the tips of the nails were all in sharp and in focus were even however far back they were, but the um, plane of focus going um, vertically, very, very shallow. And having done that, I just thought, why not have a bit of pinky purple light on the tips? Mm. They're quite, I can't decide whether they're beautiful or they're a bit scary. They evoke many emotions. Well, exactly. Mm. But, but yeah. But it does conjure up this whole concept of precision. Now, to be an orthopaedic surgeon and to be a good one and to do complex surgery, you have to be precise because things can go wrong. It's, you have to be systematic in your approach. And, you know, whether you planned it or not, it, it sort of comes out in some of your photographs. I mean, not not many, but just that one I, I noticed in particular, this, again, a personality feature that you don't even recognise that's probably necessary for your success in, in your other career. I mean, all the sort of still life photography I've been doing, it's all fairly planned and very, very cold. I mean, I took some photographs at the weekend and I took, I went out and I actually took one photo, one photograph. It's a, an architectural photograph, but it was, you know, planned and taken. And I probably sat there taking it for 20 minutes, one photograph. Hmm. Um, yeah, so it's very slow. It's not walk along, click. <laughs> Next thing. It, there are others that you told me that you spent hours trying to get the perfect photograph in India, so requiring patience, another skill important for a good surgeon. Yeah, India just takes so long to find the right people. I mean, it's every so often this sort of happenstance and you actually come across this sort of perfect looking person. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, the actual time of taking the photograph is quick there because you've got to get on with it. But it takes an awful lot of time actually going looking for them, for that photograph. And I think if you look at lots of street photographers, you know, they've got all these really amazing pictures and you think, how on earth did they get that? But I think it's mainly because they've been spent so long out there looking for things. And I think the more time you're out there, you begin to see more and you see what's potentially a good photograph. Mm. Do you travel by yourself, Sarah? Yes, all my photography is done effectively by myself, except that because it's India, one's often got a driver Mm. um, or a guide, which is actually quite nice. I mean, 
I've occasionally suddenly found that I've been completely separated from everyone in sort of Chantry Chalk or somewhere in Old Delhi, surrounded <laughs> by millions of people. And um, you can get slightly nervous. But having said that, actually, I've been, I mean, in Mumbai, I've been out photographing the streets at night, you know, on my own. So, mm. but it, somehow you need to know where you are and how you get home. Um, and it's the sort of fear of getting lost, I think, in some places. It's mm. why to have a guide or a driver mm. somewhere nearby is helpful. Yeah, I was curious because, you know, you might spend hours and hours and hours getting the perfect shot. And that's more conducive if you're getting lost, you know, in your own little world rather than, you know, walking along with somebody. You need the peace, the time to reflect, I would imagine. Yeah, to go with a um, a, a friend is not really... The answer, I mean, if you've got a driver or a guide, you know, you're paying for their time. So Mm. if you sit there for three hours, it doesn't really matter. But Mm. um, normal people would get incredibly bored. Yeah, you need to stay focused. And that's another, you know, skill as well. I'm sure as a surgeon, you can't lose concentration even for a second. You blink and, you know, well, maybe not in orthopedic surgery, but focus, I think, is key. Now, what about, um, you know, this setting up photographs? I, I know there's been a couple which show the quirkier side of, of you, Sarah. You you did one in um, the lockdown photograph and you spent ages setting it up with different items. Tell us a little bit about that. We're going to put that on the website to show people it's it's quite quirky and fun. Oh, that was at the very, very beginning of the uh, 2020. I, I mean, I guess it was taken probably in March 2020. Mm-hmm. And... I mean, it was in the first two, three weeks of lockdown. And I didn't spend lockdown on my own. I actually went back to sort of one of the family houses and was there, which was great because I wasn't on my own. But I had actually taken the precaution of sort of taking cameras and, you know, flash equipment and things because I could see that's what I could spend the next however long doing, which Mm. is what I did. But, yeah, I mean, somehow I thought, oh, this is really depressing. I thought... So I thought, well, why not sort of look at sort of produce a depressing um, suicide or COVID photograph? And I quite like putting things in so people can read them afterwards. So that photograph um, had some, had lots of empty spirit bottles, like, you know, you were going to drink yourself silly to sort of get through it all, which I think probably was a sentiment. I actually don't drink very much, so I get too many headaches, but I didn't. But I mean, that was an emotion I was trying to get through. And in that photograph, it's also got, um, I think, some uh, alcohol gels and gloves, masks. And then as more subtle, um, more or less subtle, it's got a, um, a 1912 automatic pistol hmm. in one corner. And it's also it's a bit more um, eager. It's got a some hydroxychloroquine in the picture because at that time um, Trump was saying that was the drug to be taking for COVID, <laughs> but turned out not to be true. But it, so, so the photographs ruined by that. But um, <laughs> only I'd put dexamethasone in. <laughs> As a rheumatologist, I couldn't even prescribe it for the people who actually did need it. There was such a demand on it. How did you get hold of it? I'm impressed. Well. Amazingly, um, my assistant, I've had the same surgical assistant who was my, actually my SHO 
at the Whittington, I think 27 years ago. And he then became my surgical assistant. And he's worked with me for 27 years. Mm. And he actually managed to get a prescription for it. And he sent me some. It's such a good picture. I mean, I said to you, that would win a prize. And do you remember what you said to me? You said, oh, no, I don't want to submit for any prizes in case I don't win. And I was intrigued even by that. (laughs) (laughs) You shouldn't say that. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I was asking my my daughter, we were looking at um, the pictures and um, I I said, she said, oh, that would win a prize. And I said, oh, I've already said that. And she started playing the opening scenes of Slumdog Millionaire. And in the opening scene, the girl addresses and she said, you know, it's not that you want to win. It's just that you're afraid of failing. And I thought it was really, really interesting when she played this. But you you're not afraid to win. But, you know, I think you would win, basically. I'll have to submit it on your behalf for a prize, (laughs) not tell you about it. But and another lovely one was, um, you know, the sugar cabinet. Tell us about that one. Oh, that. Yes, yes, yes. My diabetes photograph. Mm. I think that's one of the great things is that you actually get an idea of what to do. And that was sort of a game on scale. So it's an apprentice piece, um, antique chest of drawers, which I think actually was made at the same time as the full-sized one, that particular one. So Mm. it's actually quite a nice one. But then actually filling it with jelly beans and licorice all sorts and so on Mm. in the drawers. And just to confuse people about how... The scale's all wrong on the two. And then, as an afterthought, I actually put this insulin syringe on the floor in front of it, just <laughs> because obviously if you were to have so much sugar, you should be becoming a diabetic, you think. Or as an orthopaedic surgeon, you'd think that. Yes. Well, I'm very impressed as an orthopaedic surgeon, you're thinking of the medical aspects of patient's care. It's very important. Um, so there is a quirky side to you too, which which I think it, it, probably some of even your colleagues may not be, well, may, maybe they are, but, you know, when you stand back and you've got such an amazing reputation for all of this really, really complex, and believe me, for anybody who's listening, operating on a hip that's failed is, is no mean feat. And so then there's this quirky side for you and very calm and very artistic and creative and so it makes me wonder why didn't you become a photographer I mean I suppose it was as you explained in the very beginning maybe familial influencer with my middle class mother yeah (laughs) and do you think it's too late to have a second career or will you stay doing orthopaedic surgery you know like Rodney Graham he's 95 and he's still seeing patients in rheumatology clinics or do you think maybe you might decide that you know you will do more and more photography and less and less hip surgery I think well I'll do more and more photography because I, I mean, the time. I mean, if I continue to live for any length of time, I'll do more photography than orthopedic surgery because, you know, that's the way it has to be. Um, yeah, I'm sort of. I keep people keep telling me I should have an an exhibition, and no, I mean, someone even today who's got a gallery said, looking at one photograph, I should do a series. I mean, it's the photograph I did at the weekend, which is an architectural photograph, but said, oh, I should do a series of them and have an exhibition. So, yeah, people keep telling me that. But, I mean, I, I'm interested in doing an exhibition. I'm not really interested in putting in surprises somehow because wouldn't it be awful if you didn't win? And also, I'm much more into printing very big pictures, which most exhibitions don't do. And um, But, yeah, so a... An exhibition or book I would love to do, um, but 
I'm, I, you know, I, I don't ever expect to be making a living out of photography because it's too hard. Mm. The minute you start making a living out of it, you're having to photograph what other people want you to photograph, not what you want to photograph. Well, that's the counterbalance is doing it for enjoyment. It kind of adds value to your life, whereas the minute you have to make a living out of it, it can add stress and then it reduces your longevity potentially. Yeah, but most of the sort of good, good photographers do quite a lot of work as what they call personal projects, which are what they were doing because they wanted to do it. And they support it by um, taking photographs of money, probably. Mm. For example, like Warhol, were you influenced by Warhol, but some of your slightly on the pop art side with the golf clubs and or were there other influences who influenced you? Yeah, I think, yes, I think Warhol is an influence, I guess. I mean, he's such an important sort of oh, painter. I mean, I've got the baby Warhol picture, mm. very tiny one. But yes, I um, I do rate. Uh, um, well, to rate, I mean Warhol. To some extent, Warhol's a bit naughty, and he, I think actually Rauschenberg, who I talk about, is a bit naughty in painting wise because both of them, I think, sort of slightly surrounded themselves by large studios, and whether half of the pictures that Warhol's got his name on, he ever saw, I think is questionable. Hmm. because so many other people did it in the school. And uh, Reichenberg, again, I know, had a whole load of assistants who would be there late in the evening working with him after dinner. And I think an awful lot of it was paintings by committee, not necessarily by him himself. Brand. Same with Damien Hirst, wasn't it? You know, he has a lot of Damien people Hirst helping exactly him. Exactly. Exactly. But then other people say to me that Albert Titian did the same. So... And that's probably true. Well, you can certainly attest that all your own work is taken by your own hand. And do you think you get the same level of satisfaction after spending an afternoon getting the perfect shot as you would from spending an afternoon operating on a really difficult hip? Or is it very different? Well, it's very different in that you... I mean, it's the same in that if you look at the difficult hip, you've got to say, how am I going to achieve to do this? But the... With a photograph, you're sort of looking much more for, you're trying to create something which is of interest in the first place, whereas the failing hip is of interest because it appears and comes to you. So, but with a photograph, you've got to somehow create, you've got to think of creating what is going to be interesting. Mm. It's a story. If you get me. Yeah, you've got to create a story where the hit comes with its story, but you've got to be imaginative about how you can fix it. Um, I think what makes the surgeon better or worse than others is quite interesting. I think it's a combination of sort of 3D spatial awareness and sort of being having quite good hand-eye coordination. And also, I think I've probably got a fairly, well, I'm told I have a fairly good intuitive engineering sense. The engineers I work with always say, you know, you know too much about engineering, the non-engineer, but I think those help with orthopedics and you then have to have the imagination in orthopedics that what happens, what could go wrong and what you're going to do beforehand for all of those scenarios. So if you're doing a difficult case, it takes an awful lot of 
sort of thought and planning beforehand so that you've actually worked out what you would do with all the things that could go wrong and how you'd get out of those. In photographs, you tend to, I tend to do it as I go along. I haven't planned it all beforehand. So it's a nice counterbalance, isn't it? I can see how the two could go and give you a work-life balance and give you something to just counter that, that stress because you, you will be under stress, you know, in a high-performance job where you're dealing with people's lives and livelihoods and trying to give more quality of life, you know, to the elderly patients that you operate on. And does it give you a sense of satisfaction when you see somebody coming back for a six-week appointment and, you know, they're delighted with their hip? Because as I certainly feel that sense of satisfaction Oh, it's absolutely great. It's great. That's what I do it for now. I love patients being delighted and being shocked by how good they are. Mm. I mean, hip surgery is one of the, I, I think possibly actually cataract surgery may be the same, but in hip surgery, if we come back and say to the patients afterwards, now I'd like you to do a visual analog score. How good do you think this operation is in, and how much do you think you've been improved on a scale of 0 to 10? Mm. If I was a plastic surgeon, I said that to a patient and I got an eight, I'd be really happy mm. because there's only be sixes and fives. If we do that to a group of our patients, we aren't going to be thinking we're going to get tens. We frequently get twelves. Wow. I mean, it's wonderful. amazing how many people actually go to the right off the right-hand end of the division analog scale. And that is extraordinary. It is actually so much better than they expect it to be. Mm. And that is really rare in surgery. It is. It's rare in medicine. I mean, as a rheumatologist, when we treat gout or polymyalgia rheumatica and give steroids, it is that feel-good factor. But, you know, I can't imagine if you've actually intervened physically with your hands, how good that could feel. And that's what drives you to keep doing it time and time again. Wonderful. It does. I mean, you've got the sort of downside if something goes wrong, then it's exactly the opposite, of course. But um, Yes, of course. Because of course. it's a direct intervention by you, which has gone wrong. Hmm. And, and how would you like to age, you know, given that we're talking about living longer, healthier lives? How would I like to age? Hmm. I would like to stay fit and active. Um, I mean, I actually look in, you know, you've, I think you said when I, I think you may have mentioned my date of birth. So there's a limit to how long I can actually operate for, but I would hope to operate for quite, you know, another few years. And then I would hope to actually continue to do follow-ups on my patients because quite lots of patients come back at, no, 28, 30 plus years. Mm. In fact, I had a patient who came back at 37 years recently, which was wow. pretty extraordinary. That's amazing. But it's great to see people like that because, you know, patients, they sort of, so many of them by that point are not really patients, but they're really friends. Mm. Yes, I agree. I mean, in rheumatology, somewhat similar, I have patients since I started practicing first and and you have their families and then their you know, their relatives and their friends and it becomes part of understanding about that person's life. And I think that's very important when one, as a physician or a surgeon, tries to give the best solution. You need to understand their life and their choices and what they want to get out of the procedure or the intervention. Yeah. I mean, it is such a good operation that you can be, uh, I mean, fortunately, it doesn't have a lot of failure these days. Mm. I mean, I, you know, I think hip replacements now, I quote, 
are as being good. 98% will be good at the end of 10 years. Way over 90% will be good at the end of 20 years. I think with present technology, we should be getting 70% will still be good after 30 years. Mm. It's a really successful operation suddenly. Well, what you've described there is the longevity of hips in patients who come to see you. And I think that's wonderful. And it's probably a good note to close on because I think we've covered a lot of ground here and we've started to understand a little bit behind the mind and the motivations and the personality traits of an amazing surgeon, but also an artist. I mean, photography is an art form and I hope that you'll be around for so much longer to operate and on so many more patients, but also to show the world your beautiful photograph, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. Thank you, Millicent. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Thank you so much. And thank you to all my listeners for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed that conversation as much as I have. And do have a look on our website to see some of the amazing photographs that we've discussed this evening. They really are inspirational and funny and uplifting. And do join me um, next week where we have Oscar J. Ryan, another but younger up and coming photographer um, who's doing a lot of work and also is an aspiring film director. So that will be a very interesting discussion. And if you feel like sending in any feedback, please feel free to do so at hello at livelongwithpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.